Welcome to another episode of Health Creators. This is Liv, and I'm joined here today by Casper Barnes, founder and CEO of Amino Chain. So, Casper, can you give us an elevator pitch of what Amino Chain does? Yeah, absolutely. So, whenever you donate blood, or you donate stem cells, or you donate a sample of your tumor biopsy after a surgery, um, in any single one of those instances, the experience is always the same for mm-hmm. the allogeneic cell donor or for the patient. They give the sample towards a researcher or a clinician. They sign a piece of paper and they never see the sample again. They have mm. no idea where the sample went, what happened to it, what information was generated there from, if yeah. the sample was commercialized, how many times it changed hands. And that experience causes a lot of mistrust within the biomedical research sector. And over many, many, many years, this is built towards a system in which clinical healthcare outcomes are massively skewed towards favoring Caucasian or people of Caucasian background mm. and has um, left a lot of people of color and marginalized communities in the dark, right? So to give you a small instance, like 79% of um, Caucasian blood cancer patients will find a match on a stem cell registry, mm-hmm. whereas 23% of black patients will, 42% of Pacific Islanders and 48% of indigenous populations, right? So um, that's a small instance to show that if we have this altruistic donation model, you're only ever going to skew the outcomes more and more. So we need to break down this bottleneck of partaking in allogeneic cell donations and partaking in non-diagnostic research protocol donations so that people can see what happens with their samples and maybe earn pennies on the dollar back when the things are commercialized. And only then will we really start to address the $115 billion bottleneck of, of trust within biomedical research and healthcare. Got it. Um, so, so the key problem is participation. And what we're saying is that um, typically because more individuals from a Caucasian background are participating, that means that there is less availability for those who are not Caucasian receiving um, donations, essentially. Yeah, in many ways, that's it. And in other ways, what we're trying to build is a world in which the future of biomedical research ethics and consenting is technology driven, which mm. actually allows for the flexibility of secondary research of use of the materials that align in biobanks and promotes donor autonomies in a globalized and changing world. So just a really quick snapshot on that, but in 1945, we had the biggest atrocities in biomedical research ever after Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. And thereafter, we you know, had um, the Nuremberg trials and many other principles that came out of it saying that we will never have such huge atrocities within research again. Yeah. And many years later, we had the Belmont Report, yeah. which, which consolidated um, the three principles of beneficence, justice, and respectful persons, so autonomy. Yeah. And these three core pillars we want to keep within biomedical research ethics going forward. Out of that came the, the framework of informed consent. Yeah. So now whenever I use somebody to partake in a, in a research study, I'll go to them and say, this is exactly what we want to do with you. Here are all the pros and cons, and you can make a weighted decision if you want to do the donation or not. Um, that's been fantastic for donor autonomy because they know exactly what they're partaking in. But after many, many instances of many, many years, we've now built into a system in which you take the sample and use it for the singular study mm. and then store it in the biobank forever. So an average biobank of 50,000 samples has around $40 million in sunk storage cost because they can't reuse the samples that were taken under informed consent. If they want to reuse the samples for something else, more often than not, they have to go find the donor and reconsent them. And that can cost up to 500 bucks per sample. And that sucks. They don't have the overhead mm-hmm. to do that. 
So since 2019, we now have this new framework called broad consent, which means that I can go to you and say, hey, Livia, we're doing a, a podcast on, you know, sorry, no, we're doing a research study on people that do podcasts. Yeah. And um, you, can, you can either consent to it or not. But once we have your sample, we'd like to use it for whatever we want to use. And, um, and if you say no, then we can't reconsent you. But if you say yes, then we can use your sample for as much as we want. And that's great for the biobank, but it's bad for you because we don't actually know what you're going to consent to. So we essentially are building a platform in which the future of biomedical consenting will be technology driven. So we mm. use a blockchain based layer, which means it's permissionless and a lot more um, automatic in a way. We can go to the donor and open up a dialogue about partaking in scientific research. And we can say, we want to get your sample into the hands of as many people as possible so that you can learn about your disease and so that we can advance scientific advancement in every corner of the world. But we want to do it safely. Mm. So tell us what you allow and what you don't allow. And you could say something like, well, me with my particular religious background, I don't want to allow anything to do with embryonic stem cell research or mm. eugenics research. And I don't want my insurance provider to get a hold of my data. Whatever it is, we can take all of these um, T's and C's for broad use of your sample yeah. and program that as metadata of a token that represents your sample. And so you can log on to a platform and see no matter where the sample goes in the entire world, it's being used with something that's along the lines of what you consented and along the lines of something that benefits yourself and your community. And if the thing is commercialized or sold to anybody else, then you can earn pennies on the dollar back. So it's scientific. Uh, value sharing and its commercial value sharing from the ground up and um, essentially if we build that out then we'll have a system in which everybody can trust the research sector as opposed to just the people benefiting benefiting from it right now got it um and as a part of you know your thesis because you mentioned something about how the way that we're currently doing donation is skewed towards caucasian people yeah um and that you you feel that having some sort of commercial incentive can essentially broaden the the participation into different groups as well yeah well the idea is right now what we have is an altruistic based model right mm. so every like you, if you look at western europe it's such a clear cut example because yeah. any type of donation there they, they, um, they have the understanding that it should just be a gift. Yeah. Right? So whatever you do, if you donate blood or you donate anything else, stem cells, it's, it's something you do out of the kindness of your heart. And that's fantastic right now because it means that there's no coercion. Mm. And the people that donate really just do it because they believe it's a good thing to do. And that's why it yeah. you know, protects the autonomy of the people that are partaking in the, in the process. But nonetheless, if you have that system built out, you have to put yourself in the shoes of those who are privileged enough to be altruistic. Yeah. Because if you don't have mouths to feed and you don't have to work three jobs and you can actually think of you know, helping other people, that means that you can afford to travel somewhere and do the apheresis and donate mm. the cells and whatever else. And more often than not, if we be very frank, that that is something that people of a certain background and genetic background are more likely to be able to afford. So um, if we had some way to safely incentivize partaking in allergenetic cell donations, without commoditizing body parts. Yeah. That's, that's a system that we kind of want to It's create. a fine yeah. line, basically. Yeah. It's yeah. like, how do we um, create the commercial incentive, right? Because at the end of the day, money is changing hands. Why would the donor not have a share of that? 
Um, but also you don't want to kind of go down the route of let's sell our organs for cash. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, the regulatory perspectives on that mm. right now is that in general, if something is self-replenishing and it's mm. um, easily extractable, then then you are allowed to be somewhat compensated yeah. for it. Um, but if it's if it's something that obviously doesn't self-replenish and you have one of it in your body, then it's illegal to sell that. Yeah. So very recently, since 2014 or 12, I believe, um, uh, peripheral blood stem cells taken by apheresis, you're allowed to be compensated for. But a lot of the major stem cell registries still aren't paying people for their stem cells because they, they hold this belief that if you incentivize people with money, then you're going to get a lot of people that lie about their health background just to try get the mm. cash within the donation procedure. So, so what we're trying to create is essentially a system in which you can donate, and if it is used, then you get pennies on the dollar back. But there's no immediate... Like royalties. Exactly, right? There's no immediate change of money over the counter, which is which should um, sort of disencourage the people that just want to get the money out of the process. You know what I think? That even in the altruistic model, I feel like it still adds a lot of value because right now, as a donor, you don't really see where your sample goes. And mm -hmm. I think something that's really nice, if I was, you know, being really altruistic, is to be able to, like, log in somewhere and just say, hey, I donated um you know my um cells for something for some sort of research and here are all the places it went to these are the papers that were mm. published these are the the groups of people that it helps right yeah. just to be able to trace um even like a blood donation back to the hospital or back to um the the real people that i've added value to and that just doesn't yeah. currently exist no absolutely i think that there's such a big opportunity to personalize the experience more mm. than we currently have because right now we have we have diehard altruistic donors and it's part of their monthly schedule to go donate yeah. or donate whatever else they do and those guys are fantastic they're awesome but we're relying on them too much we need twenty nine thousand pints of blood a day we yeah. need fifteen thousand allergenic stem cell grafts a year and mm. at least three thousand people are dying a year because they can't find a donor yeah. or because the you know the condition's too bad enough that they can't use donors but the outcomes are still there. There's still an unmet need for not enough donations happening. And these, the small fraction of people that donate just because they love being good people isn't enough anymore, right? Yeah. You have the other end of the spectrum where people would like to, but they physically can't. They're anemic or they themselves are sick or they, they for whatever reason, just don't have it in their religious beliefs and so on. Mm. And it's not fair to, to coerce them in any way. It's just like if that's the, the beliefs of the situation they're in, then that's absolutely fine. But we shouldn't target them with, with what we're doing. The main point is in the middle here is this huge spectrum of people that either yeah. don't have enough information or they just don't have enough engagement about it or they would really be tipped over the edge with a tiny bit of incentivization. Right? Yeah. And there's a huge opportunity to play within this middle field to see exactly what are the fine lines of incentivization and personalization of the experience. Yeah. And I believe if we get it right, then we could really have a big impact on, on the number of allergenic donations that are happening a year and the, the clinical outcome for the patients that currently can't find donors. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we know that commercial incentives work, right? Right. Yeah. Um, like in Iran, uh, I believe it's legal to um, essentially sell one of your kidneys right <laughs> uh, and there are a lot less complications relating to kidney failure right um, which is very interesting 
um, because we know that essentially once you put some sort of financial incentive in place, it creates that behavioral change Absolutely. quite quickly. Yeah, yeah. I, I think with, with kidneys though, or like with organs, it's something that you would probably yeah. want to be a little bit more cautious with. Definitely. It's um, but it's again a fascinating use case just to show that you know the, the the incentivization through through monetizing body parts definitely does have an effect, but you, we need to like very 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 carefully play with how we do it. Yeah. Um, but I think you know the future will definitely have some sort of some integration of commercial benefit sharing because right now people don't realize that. There is this huge monetary mm. value that comes out of that donated material, and realistically, they should be entitled to tiny fractions on the dollar back. So, would to. would you be starting your own biobank or partnering no. with biobanks and then just providing them the software? Exactly. Yeah. So, um, what we've created, our platform in itself, um, has three different elements to it. So, the first, which is the most intuitive and easy to understand, is the donor portal. So a donor can log on to an interface with their email address, so no blockchain wallets or anything else. They can see where their samples are, how they're being used. Yeah. They can quantify their own participation in scientific research, which is awesome, doesn't exist right now. Yeah. Um, and the second thing, which is a lot more intricate and something that we patented, um, is the Amino Node software. And how this works is it's essentially something that the institutions, a biobank, would download and mm -hmm. continuously run on their servers. And it has a blockchain wallet hard programmed into it, and it integrates into the endogenous stack that they have. So if they yeah. use RedCap for data capture, or if they use Open Specimen or Cloud um, Cloud Limbs for you know a Limbs mm -hmm. instance, it doesn't really matter. We can spin up a node instance for them. Um, and then the last thing that we have is something called an MTA marketplace. So right now, when you exchange materials, let's say between Columbia and Stanford, that process might work something along the lines of. Stanford calls Columbia, says, hey, have you guys mm. got blood? They'll say, yep, let me go check. And they see if they have blood. They say, yes, we have it. And then they argue for 12 weeks about progeny rights and liabilities and so on, mm. send each other a DocuSign, and then, and then they ship the blood. And we can massively streamline that with blockchain yeah. technology. So the idea is what we can do with, with the node software is if you have 50,000 samples in your fridge, mm. you have 50,000 NFTs, you can list the ones that the decentralized network should be able to acquire. So you mm -hmm. essentially post the things to the network for other people to, to peruse. And then whatever they want to get, they can acquire through another cryptographic transaction. So in listing and acquiring the samples, you're signing your either side of the MTA, if that Got makes it. sense. So the, the blockchain is sort of record keeping of the transactions that happen in between. Them. That so, makes sense. So that's the overview of the, how the product works and the actual market that we're going into is mm. um, non-profit biobanking is one subsection. That tends to be anything that's funded by the NIH or anything that's yeah. related to academic biobanks. And then there's a whole other subsection of what we're building out for for-profit biobanks. So how that system currently works yeah. would be like if you go to get care in Mount Sinai or in Presbyterian right now, your consent document at the bottom might say something along the lines of, we will never sell your identifiable information, which insinuates mm. they will sell your non-identifiable information. And once you've signed off to that consent document, your samples may be completely de-identified and not, maybe not sold, but definitely distributed towards brokers. Uh, and then these brokers would aggregate the samples and they would sell the samples for profit towards SME biotechs or towards pharma companies or to other industry partners. Um, and within that value chain, everybody would like to know the sample source, 
Mm. Everybody would like to see a full picture of the provenance of how the sample was used. And everybody would like to know, um, you know, the integrity of the cells, how many times yeah. they've been thawed or, you know, cryopreserved or whatever else. Um, and that is a really good use case to allow the donors to earn pennies on the dollar back. Because in the nonprofit sector within, you know, the, within the academic context, there's no, there's no incentivization to sell the things for money. That's just done by cost recovery. Mm. But within the for-profit biobanking model, people really are selling donated material and trying to make money out of it. And in those instances, we think that the donor should earn a little bit of cash back as well. Mm. So blockchain is necessary here because you need to de-identify the patient data, but then also need a uh, way of tracking where the sample goes to. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that's one main way in which blockchain is necessary. But the, mm. the main use case for blockchain here is that it's, again, something that, that allows the whole system to be more permissionless. Mm -hmm. So blockchain at the heart of it is just the technology that enables trust. Yeah. Right? And, I mean, right now, if you want to send money from me to you, then that would just be... It would just be a direct a transaction that we can enable on a blockchain. Whereas mm -hmm. if we did it through our JP Morgan Chase or Bank of America accounts, then we'd be relying on the institutions to handle the transaction. So blockchain is just a platform that enables direct interactions between people. And what yeah. you can do here is have direct interactions between the research bench and what's happening in the, the research setting mm -hmm. and the donor themselves. So That's you're nice. not yeah. you're not relying on anybody to to keep access to the identifiers and return the scientific value or keep access to you know however much money people should be entitled to for each sale. It's yeah. just automatic. Did you ever think about how you could like apply NFTs into what you're doing? Well, the, our whole system is through NFTs. Oh, okay, right? so that, that's, that's actually like because I yeah. actually wrote a grant about this about awesome. NFT yeah. and um, clinical research participation. Um, so is the idea that essentially the donor gets like an NFT, right? Yeah, kind of. So basically, I think how we've designed it uh -huh. is very deliberately done in a way that it abstracts away every element of blockchain possible. Mm -hmm. And it just shows you the use case of what blockchain really can do. So what we do is when a sample is donated and it goes towards a lab and it's stored within a LIM system, mm -hmm. a lab inventory management software, Whenever there's a state change in the endogenous system, saying we just found blood, we pull that information and generate an NFT out of it. Mm. And we can tie the person's email address to that NFT such that the NFT itself is held at the institution. It's in the blockchain wallet mm. in the node for the institution. But the donor can log on to the donor portal with their email address. Got it. And they can see their NFT or a NFT representing their sample at the institution. And whatever associations between the limbs and the token there are, they can see how that token is being used or, you know, what, what scientific cool. value comes out of it. That's how it's built. Yeah, that's cool. I, like, don't exactly remember how we were going to do this, but yeah. it was just a random, <laughs> random idea I had on... Because I, 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 I think there are similarities in clinical research participation and also in um, donation. Yeah. Um, ultimately, you're solving that participation problem, but it's how do you how do you make it commercially viable enough that people will take part? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the the main the main use case there that we're providing for the institutions is mm. that we can 
ethically unlock all of the stored materials mm. that right now they just write off as a, as a loss on their P&L. So again, if we go back to the consenting procedures, the main idea is under informed consent, what you can and can't do with the sample is really stringent thereafter. Um, and some places try to use an informed consent document that's approved by an IRB and still allows for some flexibility mm. of how you use the sample afterwards. So maybe you can use it two or three times under different protocols. But those, those institutions tend to have very low um, consenting rates, like as low as you know, 20 to 25%, which means that they have to yeah. ask five people for one person to donate. And that really sucks because these people are only getting around 10 samples a day. So would you have to, so you partner with an existing biobank. Yeah. Most of their donors are under informed consent rather than broad consent. Would yeah. step one be to basically contact those donors and say, hey, would you, would you be able to switch to broad consent? No, so it's more the policy of the institution, mm -hmm. whether you, they adopt informed or broad consent. So yeah. it's not necessarily something that the individual donor would have any say yeah. over. Got so it. the main use case, like the initial foot in the door would be, we're going to go to the institutions and say, you currently use informed consent and you would like to use broad consent, mm -hmm. but you don't think it's ethical enough. How about our system, which we've coined demonstrated consent? I see. Um, you could use this as a software that allows for both research flexibility and donor autonomy. So if you adopt this through a pilot and there's two or three institutions that are all doing it, we can also enable free-floating, harmonized sample sharing between the three of them. And the donors can stay informed with how their samples are used the entire time. Got it. What made you start this company? Yeah, so I, and it goes back to me and my background. I mean, you can hear from my yeah. accent, obviously from yeah. South Africa. Um, how I got there was I was around six months old and I moved over with my mom and yeah. my sister. Um, and my mom started a charity called Yabonga. Um, and Yabonga works with women with HIV and AIDS and provides uh -huh. them with antiretroviral treatments and provides homeschooling support towards kids in the townships yeah. just outside of Cape Town. Um, and living there in like the late 1990s and early 2000s, mm -hmm. post-apartheid South Africa, Mandela's Rainbow Nation, there was a huge emphasis on if you live in this area of town, other people live in that area of town, realize your privilege, have open yeah. discussions of equity, race, and access, and giving back. And, um, you know, that early exposure, again, towards, towards playing with the kids in the townships through my mom's charity on the weekends definitely opened up all of those conversations from a very, very early age. Mm -hmm. And um, it's been a familial value and a sort of cultural value from a very, very early age to, to find your own way to give back in whatever career you decide to pursue. Yeah. Um, and then when I was around 12 years old, I had a malignant melanoma. And I was extremely lucky because it was caught very, very early. Um, and I only needed one operation to remove the tumor. But then thereafterwards, I remember the doctor standing Where over the Where was the, the tumor? Where was it? Yeah. On my lower back. Oh, yeah. wow. <laughs> Yeah, so, but it was super lucky. So just one operation taken out. Um, and then thereafter, the doctor stood over my bed and he was holding this sort of sample in, the, in his hand. And he said, look what we took out of your lower back. And I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. Can I take it with and show my friends in school? And he very clearly said, no, unfortunately, we have to keep it here and we have to study mm. it in the lab. And then I was like, sure, that's fine. I didn't think yeah. anything of it. But more importantly, neither did my family or yeah. anybody else. So um, many, many, many years later, I really appreciated just how much of a privilege it was to have that blind trust where other people might experience innate skepticism i experienced innate trust right so that was the big realization um and 
and essentially now what we're building is this a platform that everybody can experience the same trust mm-hmm. that that I experienced when I was a patient, right? And I would hope that mm. through what we're building, everybody would be able to equitably partake in scientific research. Got it. Um, and did you said you studied um, science and art? Um, yeah. Was there like an element where you were like exploring blockchain before you built this company? Yeah, so I, I did a bachelor's degree in arts and a bachelor's degree in science. So it was a BA and a BSc. Mm. Um, and within that, the, the specific majors that I chose were economics and neuroscience. So those were the two mm-hmm. backgrounds from my undergrad. Um, I then left those and did a master's in management at London Business School and did a master's in, in, in biotech at Columbia. Okay. Um, and and the, the interest in decentralism actually did come out of my undergraduate, where I, <laughs> I did my undergraduate research thesis, or my dissertation, on um, a slime mold called Physarum polycephalum. And it's a biocomputational organism, mm-hmm. which allows, um, essentially, it creates networks between food sources. Yeah. Um, and there was a study of how it had recreated the subway map in Tokyo. And oh, after 24 hours, exactly, yeah. recreated a, pretty much the exact same transport network that I had out there. So I did the similar sort of thing with London Zone 1. Mm. And I put food sources on all of the tube stops inside London Zone 1, and I let the mold grow over it. And I compared the network created by the mold versus the existing transport infrastructure that we have in London. Um, and then from there, discussed the different topics of how swarm intelligence can mimic different forms of artificial intelligence. Interesting. And how biocomputational single cellular organisms in many ways through billions of years of evolution are analogistic models of AI and mm. the things that we're trying to recreate right now. They have the same topology as neural nets. They work in yeah. the fuzzy fed system. So it's really fascinating to see how they grow and how they move. And um, from that, I was actually invited to carry on as a PhD. Um, and I decided I didn't want to be the slime mold guy. So yeah. <laughs> I wrapped it up and um, and then moved on to do management and then biotech. Okay, so so you joined Antler yeah. after Columbia. Uh, I joined Antler after Columbia, exactly. So um, that would have been around a year ago now. Did you come into Antler already having this idea, or did you kind of meet your co-founder and then shape the idea together there? Exactly. So how that worked was um, I took a class at Columbia called Entrepreneurship and Biotech. Mm -hmm. um, And that was run by a fantastic professor of ours called Dr. Sable. Um, And and he treated all of us like his own mini incubator. We had to come up with our idea throughout the semester. We had to practice pitching it throughout the Mm -hmm. the semester interactively. And by the end of it, I pitched him my idea, which was originally something related to blockchain and decentralizing HLA matchmaking for allogeneic cell donations. Um, and he liked the idea at the time and encouraged me to you know, continue exploring it and create a pitch mm-hmm. deck and come back to him later on. And he sort of nudged me in the right direction to keep exploring the idea. I then quickly found out that I didn't have the perfect idea at the time. Yeah. Um, but it definitely spurred me into the right way of wanting to find what the good product market fit is and where are the gaps that you can address with blockchain technology. And um, when I hit Antler, I eventually had the time and freedom to really focus on it. And, mm. um, and then we landed on what we have now and something that we're really incredibly proud of. What's mm. been the most challenging thing about kind of starting up and 
I think the first year is the hardest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> from my experience, um, I don't know if you found yeah. it difficult in in this early stage. The most challenging thing, candidly, I think, is like you. I, I get a lot of energy from hanging out with other people. Mm. And if you, you know, you could see yourself loving a really big corporate job because you have a big analyst class and you can hang yeah. out with people and you learn dynamically with others. But if you're a startup founder, many times a solo founder, you sit down and we work with your black coffee and your computer and it's you against the world. Yeah. And those early days of let me just dive into the internet and see how much I can learn can be really daunting and they can really drown you out if you're not. I I think that's right. I think the first year was the hardest because you're so lonely. Absolutely. In the beginning, you're just like on your computer most of the time. Exactly. So you know, trying to trying to build out that that interactive learning lifestyle environment Mm. for yourself is quite difficult if you if you need to fully get going from the ground from the ground up on your own. Um, But once you do do it, there's nothing more rewarding when you start to build your own momentum as well. Um, in our instance, for example, we got into Antler, but then I also did a hackathon. Mm. And in the hackathon, I sort of cross-sold the fact that we were doing Antler, that there might be money at the end of it. And I used what all the developers I met at the hackathon built for me as a prototype to raise with Antler. So it was a win-win yeah. on either side. That's and nice. from that, it just, it just worked out well, realizing that you can cross-sell your opportunities and you can find small communities of people to work together in yeah. hackathon environments or in accelerators. And then thereafter, things start to get easier for you, and then, and then it's just exciting. But you know, don't don't get ever get drowned out at the beginning. Would be my advice. Um, oh, that moves me on to the next section. Yeah. So, what's the number one thing that you would recommend someone to do if they want to build a healthcare startup? And can you share a story or experience of how you learned about this? Yes. So, one thing that they should do when they're building a healthcare startup. I think the first thing I would say to absolutely everybody is just go become the expert in the field, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you, you might have an idea for a gap that's out there, you might want to understand something a little bit different. Even if you haven't been a medic and worked in the space mm-hmm. for 15 years, you haven't worked with medical records for 15 years, you can understand how they work and the internet is out there. Just go become a real expert. Know the thing inside out um, such that you can answer any question. Uh, that, that gets thrown at you from other people that have lived experience. In the yeah. world. Um, and one thing that I would say within that, my approach to how I became the expert was reaching out to other experts and getting buy-in from them yeah. to, to, to want to believe in whatever I was building out at the time. And um, I think a really good story that I would have for that was how we onboarded uh, Dr. Richard Burt, um, who's a fantastic stem cell therapy doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, he's recently wrote, written a book called Everyday Miracles, which is a really fantastic, fantastic read as well. Mm-hmm. And um, when we were focusing on allogeneic stem cell donations, I, I said, well, I just have to speak to this guy. He's, he's amazing. He's exactly what we need. Yeah. And um, I guessed his email. I saw that he went to Northwestern. I just found the, you know, yeah. the back end of the, what the email could be, wrote him a bunch of emails, and then eventually got one reply saying, hi, sorry, not interested in talking to you. Or something along those lines. And then the only thing that I could see there was like, oh, I, I got the right email. So, <laughs> so let me just double down and keep messaging. Yeah. And then from that, I kind of borderline tested him to the point where he took this call. And then on the first call with him, in 15 minutes, I sold him on what we were trying to build. And he loved the idea. Yeah. And he invited me to come and see him speak at a conference for the European Bone Marrow Registry in London. And I was in New York at the time. So, I mean, the call ended. I 
you booked a flight to London the day, the next day. Is that why you were in London? Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh okay. no, that was actually, it was a while oh, okay, ago. So okay. it was last year. Yeah. But yeah. Um, and then booked a flight to London, flew over there, met him in person. And um, he's, long story short, I mean, a, a vested advisor of ours mm. um, in Amina Chain now. And he's applying for grant funding right now at the Scripps Institute in LA. And he's included us in his grant application. Amazing. So we've got a really fantastic relationship with this yeah. world-renowned stem cell therapy doctor. So again, my advice for everybody who there would be become the expert and maybe onboard the experts as well. Yeah. And uh, yeah, build out the best team of people with, with the relevant advice of the industry you're building. And, and what's the number one thing not to do? And can you give a story with that? The number one thing not to do? Yeah. I think not to, not to play on the same idea, but the first thing that comes to mind would be not to let yourself be drowned out. Or, you know, not, do not let yourself feel defeated by the idea that you've done. Because really, your startup yeah. will only ever fail once when you, you stop decide. trying. Yeah. <laughs> that's very true. It's really true. So, I mean, you could have yeah. the most whack idea that's never going to work, and you could just be at it for 15 years. But if you just keep iterating and trying to find, you know, be open to change and try mm. to find something that's something that's going to work and generate revenue and, you know, create a successful business, then you will succeed. Yeah. It's literally just a matter of, if you have that mindset, then it's a matter of time. So, so my advice on that side would be, you know, don't give up or don't, don't give up. As I said, something not to do would be keep yeah. trying until you get it right. I, I actually find it um, really interesting to be building a startup right now. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if you've had a similar experience where like m most of the work that we used to do is like pretty automated now. Yeah, yeah. definitely, definitely, definitely. I mean, the rise of GPT and yeah. you know, all, all other similar such platforms, I think it definitely makes what you're doing a lot easier in some yeah. ways i mean if you if you spend a lot of time automating email writing or if you're mm. trying to you're trying to create a bibliography for the sample that you, you know if you're writing papers and so on it, it definitely streamlines your workflow so that's awesome and it also means that in many ways you can you can work with a smaller team yes. if you want to you can be more dynamic yeah. have you found the same thing with neuro or yes um yeah? i think so i think i think so i am basically at present the only non-engineer on the team right and so i do like there's a lot of things outside of pure engineering that need to be done in a company but i don't mm. think i like i think that it was almost unmanageable previously but now with um i use like microsoft edge dev perplexity mm -hmm. um everything is just so much easier absolutely yeah yeah really definitely um and i mean that's 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 the the exact you know reason to start a company right now. Yeah, it's never been easier than it has right now. You could do it with one person. You I feel like yeah, because yeah. because um, you can use GPT to like build apps as well. Absolutely, you can yeah. also like prompt GPT to to become your co-founder. Yeah, have you, have you ever tried that? I've seen other people try to do that. Like the opening line in a new thread with GPT is you are a co-founder for this startup and then you explain the startup and then you explain all of the things that it needs to do. Because if you think about like what AI is, I mean, GPT yeah. is a brain that they've created, right? So it's like, it's been trained and it now can think in a certain way. So if you just pilot how you want it to interact with you, then you can get phenomenal value out of GPT. There's so many like um, startup specific tools on top of it. 
I used one the other day, don't remember the name, but you type in like the prompt, like yeah. general prompt of what your startup does, and it generates like a full like 10 page business plan. This will be good for your due diligence. <laughs> a 10 page business plan, financial model, like everything. And it's like, that just would have taken me so long. And yeah. like, I remember when I first got started, I spent so long doing this stuff, like making a business case, doing all of like the, you know, like the typical business school, like quarters five analysis, da 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 da, da. Yeah. Like, it's just like completely automated now. Absolutely. And then the one, the last thing that we used it for as well, which was super helpful, was all of the pilot agreements that we wanted to Mm. come up with so we're working with a bunch of different types of biobanks right and some are yeah. focused on certain types of diseases or certain types of samples or some are for profit some are non-profit and the, the nuances of rewriting the whole like template for mm. an agreement for each one of these guys is could take forever not anymore thanks to gpt right if you, yeah. if you put in the right prompt then they they can find different templates for different types of industries of biobanking so it's phenomenal yeah, I do love Edge Dev, like the browser, yeah. the Microsoft browser, because you can literally open your emails or PDF and be like, hey, I'm looking at this legal agreement. Can you tell me if there's anything I should like be concerned about? And yeah. it just gives you like the answer. That's fantastic. I haven't, yeah. even, I haven't tried that one yet. Okay, try it out. <laughs> that one. Um, and I have one last question for you. Awesome. So, Castor, what's the number one impact you want to leave on the world today with amino chain so the number one impact that i want to leave on the world with amino chain is to create a platform that is synonymous with trust in healthcare and in scientific research i want to create a platform that absolutely everybody can see what happens with their donated material how it's used and reliably want to partake in scientific research and allogeneic cell donations and want to help other people because they can see how their things are used and reliably build out you know, the, the partaking in scientific research experience. So in addition to the Health Creators community, you'll also find everything you need on healthcreators.co. That includes our educational tracks, vendor selection tools, CRO databases, and even which investors you should be talking to. When you log into healthcreators.co, you'll also have direct access to New Root for clinical development and a bunch of other resources you need to build better companies in healthcare.